ओम so we've been asked to speak about Srila Prabhupada. Actually, we don't speak anything else. If we speak anything else, we're in trouble. We should... Uh, we, we sometimes hear the term Prabhupada Kata. Uh, the common term we find in Chaitanya Charitamrita, for instance, is Krishna Kata or Hari Kata. These are two common words. Um, Srila Prabhupada sometimes in... in a, Explaining, there's one famous verse. Um, this Jare Deko Tare Koha Krishna Upadesh Amaragai Guru Hoya Tara Edesh. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, Wherever you go, whoever you meet, instruct them in the science of Krishna, and this way become a guru and deliver the land. This land. And Srila Prabhupada explained, often when he was quoting this verse, there are two kinds of Krishna Upadesh or Krishna Kata. Uh, in that's called in Sanskrit Krishnasya Kata, that which is directly spoken by Krishna. Most famous of which is Bhagavad Gita, uh, but there's also Krishna's extensive instructions to Uddhava in the Srimad Bhagavatam. There's his instructive, uh, his extensive instructions as Kapila Dev to his mother Devahuti, also in Srimad Bhagavatam. And many places in Bhagavatam and other Shastras, there's Krishna. Speaking, giving instruction. And there's also Krishna Vishayak Kata, which means topics uh, about Krishna. So we should always speak Krishna Kata or Hari Kata, as two names for the same thing. And Prabhupada Kata is within Hari Kata. Uh, because Srila Prabhupada always spoke about Krishna. So, as I said, we should always be speaking about Prabhupada, either what he taught us or his activities. Devotees often ask, tell us Prabhupada Kata. They like to hear uh, pastimes of Srila Prabhupada, especially from Srila Prabhupada's disciples. They like to hear about our personal experiences with Srila Prabhupada. And uh, it's about 15 years ago or something, I wrote a book called My Memories of Srila Prabhupada. Because so often I was asked to devotees to tell them about my memories of Prabhupada. I thought, I'll put it in a book. If they want, they can take the book. Um, once I was in some small place in... Uh, Northwest United States, Oregon. I can't remember the name of the place. It was some small place. And I was at a program with Prahlad Anandaswamy, who I, you probably haven't heard of him, but he's a sannyasi in Iskon, Prabhupada disciple from about 1969, I think. Like that, from quite early. He was part of the, the Buffalo crowd. When you say buffalo crowd, he's going to translate it now. <laughs> he doesn't know. He doesn't know what it, buffalo is. A town in New York State, opposite to Canada, where many devotees joined about 1969. There are no buffalo. No buffalo. It's the name of a town. A small town. Somehow or other, many devotees came from there. Somehow or other means Rupanuga. 
No, I mean Rupanuga when they're in preach. Yes, and then yes, yes. Trivigram and Tejas yes, and uh, Praladananda. So, hmm? Madan Mohan Mohini. She's, yeah. She's there in your yes. north, in your village, Kapad village. So, um, so where are we going? Yes, yeah, so he was there, yeah. And uh, at the end of the class, I think he spoke something and I spoke something. And then someone asked, could you speak some pastimes about Prabhupada? He said, no. He said, no, I'm not going to. He said, the Prabhupada, he didn't go on and on speaking about different pastimes of his guru. He spoke the instructions. He thought that was more important. Prahladananda Maharaj said that often devotees, they just want to hear as some kind of entertainment. Of course, it's spiritual entertainment. So, uh, as regards pastimes of Prabhupada, right now, at this moment, at 5.46 p.m., I'm saying no, but that doesn't mean I won't say yes a little later, but I'm going to ask Haripada Prabhu and his good wife to speak. I'd like to hear what you have to say about your memories of Srila Prabhupada. It is inspiring, no doubt. It's also... Uh, Usually these memories of Prabhupada, they, they get mixed in, or devotees, to, to give context, they have to state what they were doing before they came to Krishna consciousness. In every case, it's very inspiring. Ah, I, I just heard today, um, listening from a recitation of the 10th canto of Bhagavatam, this verse comes up in um, the prayers of Muchukunda, which is quoted in Chaitanya Charitamrita. That someone may be wandering in the ocean of material existence and then somehow by the mercy of devotees they're washed up onto the shore. So in each case we see when people come to devotional service that we, we can see Krishna's hand is there. So without any further ado, please move the microphone. Hare Krishna. Well, Maharaj said that usually devotees speak about what they were doing uh, previous to meeting Prabhupada and joining ISKCON. So I was a uh, first-class, top-tier servant of Maya before I met Prabhupada and heard the transcendental message that he had to bring us. Means uh, absorbed in sex, drugs, and rock and roll like many of us uh, hippies in America. But uh, by, by the Lord's mercy, uh, somehow I got sick and tired of being intoxicated and chasing the girls and, and uh, just living a, a, a foolish life. And I, I gave it all up and I started sincerely praying to Jesus because I was uh, from a Christian background. And uh, my basic prayer was to Jesus... He said, you are the Son of God. I want to know the Father. I want to know of your Father. Because the Bible spoke of God the Father who art in heaven. And Jesus used to pray to him. So I prayed to Jesus, help me understand who is God the Father. So I had given up my bad habits. I had a small house I was buying in California. And I had my own small business. I was 22 at the time. 
Uh, I had some mm, craft business I was doing. I was making some things that I was selling from some store in a kind of a touristy area in the the, uh, Santa Cruz Mountains. Actually, I was making drug paraphernalia. Huh? Yeah, like that. Chillums and hash pipes and coke snorters and all kinds of nonsense things. Handmade. Handmade. Yeah, very unique. And I had long hair down to my waist and a big beard. I looked like a forest dweller. (laughs) Anyway, one day in my good fortune, having prayed for about a year very sincerely, no intoxication, I gave up like I said, uh, exploiting the young ladies. And I just was very sincerely praying to Jesus. I was at a friend's house. And I noticed on his bookshelf a, a book called Bhagavad Gita as it is. So I pulled it out and I said, uh, um, what is this? Where is this from? He said, it's like a Bible from India. It's like an Indian Bible more or less. So I had read the the Bible quite Thoroughly, so I said, can I borrow it? I'll bring it back in a few days. So that first morning, having the book in my home, I opened it up and started reading. And I never left the house for three days. Three days in a row, I read Bhagavad Gita as it is. All 900 pages from cover to cover. I'm not sure I ate either. I don't know. I was... I'm not sure I was even eating. I don't remember. But I was so absorbed in that book, it completely... uh, Uh, captured me, the transcendental knowledge. And I was struck with amazement that I had finally found out that Jesus' father's name is Krishna. So I noticed in the very back of the book there were a list of ISKCON centers. And I was very eager to find out and especially to meet this Bhaktivedanta Swami who I could clearly understood was the writer of all these purports I had just read. So I made some phone calls and I found out, I spoke to a devotee and I found out that Srila Prabhupada was in our Los Angeles temple, we call New Dwarka. So I asked him, how long will this Bhaktivedanta Swami be there? He said, for a few more days. I said, okay, please ask him not to leave, I'm coming, I want to see him. So after... Three entire days of reading 900 pages without even blinking. I just jumped in my car and drove six hours to the temple. Now, you have to understand, the temple was packed with brahmacharis. They all had this very beautiful tilak and their heads was freshly shaved because whenever Prabhupada would come, all the brahmacharis would shave their head very nicely to receive Prabhupada and beautiful shika. And here I am with this you know, hair down to my waist, and like I said, like a caveman. So I was quite embarrassed. But I was stunned by the uh, the temple atmosphere, the smell of all the incense and the amazingly beautiful deities and all the uh, wonderful transcendental personalities. I just assumed they were all, you know, I didn't know who Narada Muni was, but if I did, I, they looked like about 80 Narada Munis walking around. So I heard Prabhupada give a class, and in that class, um, there was a boy sitting in front of me, and Prabhupada was looking in my direction, and he said what we've heard on the Japa tape before, sit properly. 
And I thought, I just got here. I think I'm in trouble right now. Because Prabhupada didn't like us to sit with our knees up and holding our arms around our knees. He wanted us to sit with our legs down. And I escaped uh, being chastised because the person in front of me started squirming. And I realized, oh, he's just talking to him, not to me. So I was happy. So I made a commitment that morning. I said, I'm going to borrow a razor from somebody and shave this beard off. So I did. I borrowed some razor and I, I kept my long hair and I tucked it behind my sheet, my, my uh, uh, shirt, and I at least I cut all the big bushy uh, facial hairs off. I felt a little less conspicuous. And this very nice Grihasa devotee, Jivananda Prabhu, who allowed me to stay with him and his family, Came one uh, the second day I was there. Jivananda, yeah, originally from Texas. He, yeah, yeah, he went to San Francisco probably in '67, early. He was married to Hasharani. They had four children. You know him, yeah. So he he came and he brought some, uh, not not um, faceted, but just kind of uh, odd shaped, small round ruby beads. And he said, Srila Prabhupada's uh, ruby neck beads, which he wears for health purposes sometime, the thread has broken. You want to do some service for Srila Prabhupada, you can restring the beads. So I got a little personal seva that second day I was there. So after uh, staying for three days, I I drove back uh, to my small house there, uh, north, six hours north. And I started putting tilak on every day. Then I borrowed a buzzer, electric buzzer, from a friend and shaved my hair. And because of strong attachment, I left my long, long, long shika. And I called and invited Jivananda and his wife and children. If you like, if temple will allow, you, your family can come and you can stay in my house and we'll make it a temple and we'll preach. I'm quitting my business. I'm closing it. I just want to be a, a devotee now. So they stayed for six or seven months and then they shifted nearby to another house and some brahmacharis came and we stayed for six more months preaching and then I sold the house and I think $17,000 I got and I gave it to the temple. And I didn't realize until a little while later how fortunate we were to be in California because whenever Prabhupada came to the United States, he invariably spent time in California. Other places he didn't always go. Many temples he didn't frequent, but he always came to San Francisco and he came to Los Angeles. So I, I saw Srila Prabhupada uh, in 1974 and in 1975. I joined in 73, 1973, December. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say that my wife joined in November 73, so she is one month senior to me. So uh, we, I was blessed to see Prabhupada twice at Rathiyatra. And in 1975, at the Rathiyatra festival, I saw Srila Prabhupada dance for the first time in San Francisco in Golden Gate Park. I had already seen him in 1974 at that first Rathi I went to, and then again, second year in 75. And of course, Prabhupada stayed at the temple, so we he gave classes, and I, I didn't go on a morning walk on 74, but in 75, I went on four morning walks with Srila Prabhupada at the University of California, Berkeley. 
I'll, I'll come back to the Ratiyatra, but I, I used to be able to, every time Prabhupada would come, I would grind his sandalwood pulp for putting on his forehead. I, I relished that service for Srila Prabhupada. I was a you know, young devotee at that time, year and a half, but to, to grind the sandalwood paste and put it with a carnation on Prabhupada's forehead was a great pleasure. On those morning walks, I, I was, uh, first of all, I was shy to speak to Srila Prabhupada. I, I wanted to sometimes ask a question in the class or sitting having darshan in his room. So I became a little determined on those first a couple of morning walks, and I decided tomorrow morning, if I get to go on a walk again, I'm going to ask Srila Prabhupada a question on the walk. So this is Ratayatra time, and there's always a lot of sannyasis there. And again, I was a new young brahmachari, a year and a half, almost two years of brahmachari. So still I was quite nervous, but on that third walk, I had a good question picked out, because if you ask a foolish question, you'll be chastised. It's quite likely. Uh, I had a good question picked out to ask Srila Prabhupada. If you ask some really far out esoterical question, Prabhupada is likely to look at you and say, why you have asked that question? I felt bad for the devotees who, you know, got that chastisement, but I definitely didn't want it to be me. So I was real careful about picking a practical question. So I'll just tell you in advance, I didn't get the full question out of my mouth. I got a portion of it out, but just a small portion of the question. First of all, I had to make my way up to the front because uh, so many sannyasis were gathered around Prabhupada. So I just, you know, kind of slipped and slided in between devotees until I was like, just like between Chakrapani and Prabhu and myself, this close, walking alongside of Prabhupada. And my heart was pounding because I was thinking, okay, now I'm going to say something to him. <laughs> so I got my courage up and I took a deep breath, and I I only got one syllable out. Shh. That's all that came out. Shh. Like Srila Prabhupada, but just the shh. As soon as the shh sound came out, I just froze. I couldn't speak anymore. You may laugh, but uh, I mean, to be in the presence of a personality like Srila Prabhupada was unbelievable mercy and good fortune for a fool like me. So I was I was very, very respectful and just very cautious and didn't want to make some big boo-boo in front of him. So <laughs> Fortunately, I have some photos and even one of those walks was videotaped uh, by Yadubar, one of our God brothers, who Maharaj knows I'm sure quite well. So I have some remembrances of that and we keep it in our Bhajan Kutir in Udupi. So so I'll just mention two noteworthy things and then I'll pass it on to Palini Devi. So we've all seen that photograph of Srila Prabhupada standing on the stage with his arms up at a Ratiyatra with a big red garland hanging. Almost everyone has seen that. Very famous photograph. We had a godbrother... Uh, from Oregon, leading an ecstatic kirtan. And the devotees on stage, almost all senior devotees, GBC and sannyasis, were smiling this wide. You know, this wide smile. Just in complete ecstasy, if you see an expanded picture of that. Everyone is ecstatic because the kirtan is raging. 
And Srila Prabhupada had been handed a bouquet of long stem flowers. So he was sitting on his Vyasasan holding that bouquet of flowers with that long beautiful red garland. And as the Kirtan got more ecstatic, he decided to stand up. And you see him in that picture. His arms were up and uh, he began to you know, sway back and forth. And still he was holding these bouquet of flowers in, uh, under his arm. So he began pulling one flower out at a time and throwing it as high as he could in the air on this side and one on this side. And, and all of us brahmacharis were right in the front. We had pushed our way up as close as we could get maybe 150, 200 brahmacharis, uh, just like an ocean of saffron color right in front of the stage. Now, do you think any of the brahmacharis wanted to catch one of those flowers? We were just like missiles, diving after these flowers that he would throw in the air, and as they were falling down, there were so many streaks of orange, you know, jumping into the air trying to capture that flower. And so that went on until they were emptied and then Prabhupada put his arms up and began to jump and dance. First time ever I saw him dance. And naturally everyone became ecstatic when Prabhupada was ecstatically dancing on the stage, jumping who can say how high and screaming Hare Krishna to the top of our lungs. And at the height of the ecstasy of Prabhupada dancing and all the devotees in the crowd going wild, Prabhupada stopped dancing and he took off the red garland. We knew what was coming. And he walked a little close, right to the edge of the stage and bundled that big garland uh, as best as he could and underhanded he threw it as high as he could in the air. How many of you have ever personally done or seen people throw some uh, little flakes of some chapati or something in a fish pond and see what happens? So many little pieces of chapati or whatever you have, rice, uh, uh, you know, uh, something, little, little grains of something. So many fish would attack at one time. So that's what happened to that garland. It literally exploded by all the hands grabbing it and yanking it in different directions. I was among the disappointed brahmacharis who didn't get any of that flower garland. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> and then I can say that after Rathayatra, it was always on a Sunday, the other devotees from other temples all over the United States had to f- drive back and take care of their temple and go back to their service. So there were just basically the San Francisco temple devotees where I had been living for a year and a half. We were just there with maybe a few devotees staying over on Monday. And there were two really fun things to do. One was to greet Srila Prabhupada when he arrived, which I was able to do in 1975, four and five. And that was always ecstatic because three or four hundred devotees would be there waiting with great anticipation for Srila Prabhupada to walk out into the open area where we were all uh, looking forward to his darshan. No, I meant when he arrived in San Francisco on the airport, four, four, three, four hundred devotees would go, as many as could. They were, every one of us wanted to be at the airport when Prabhupada got off the plane and walked into the big area like that. And the, the, uh, 
other passengers, non-devotee passengers, uh, those who aren't chanting Hare Krishna, had no idea who Prabhupada was. They were astonished to see when Prabhupada did finally walk out and we could see him come through the door. Uh, they were amazed to see three or four hundred devotees just fall the dandavats in in front of Prabhupada. They were they looked like Jagannath or something. Their eyes were so big to see so many people bowing down in very uh, enthusiastic way. So that was ecstatic, but it was also very sweet when Prabhupada would leave after Rathiyatra because mainly the devotees who lived in that temple were the ones who were there. The others, as I said, had to go back to their uh, various temples. So it was a much smaller group. In that particular time in 75, about 25 of us uh, accompanied Srila Prabhupada to the airport. And I've never forgotten, I memorized one of the Vyasa Puja offerings by uh, one of our God brothers, Guru Kripa Prabhu, who I'm sure Muktivikar uh, Swami knows. Uh, he wrote the shortest ever written Vyasa Puja offering for Srila Prabhupada during his presence. His entire offering was, he wrote Namahum Vishnu Bhadaya Krishna Prasai, Prabhupada's Pranam Prayers. And then he wrote his offering, 12 words long. His whole Vyasa Puja offering was 12 words. Shall I quote it for you? Sweet, sweet, what a treat. Can't be beat, those two lotus feet. So all, most of us have a picture of Prabhupada's lotus feet somewhere in our house or wherever we are and we put our head on it and you know, all of that stuff. So I had this desire to touch Srila Prabhupada's feet one time. That's a dangerous thing to do if sannyasis are anywhere around. You either get your, your hand stepped on or you get um, speared by a danda, something they will do to push you away because naturally they don't want Prabhupada to trip. So my mind was... You know, thinking as I was sitting at Prabhupada's feet, just like Maharaj is sitting in a chair, Prabhupada was sitting in a chair, and all of us were sitting at his feet, 25 devotees approximately sitting at Prabhupada's feet, and he was speaking very casually. It's so sweet atmosphere. At the airport. San Francisco airport. So for half an hour or so, Prabhupada was sitting, and we were relishing his association, hearing from him, and even when he just was softly chanting, we just stared at him. We always stared at him, anytime we saw him. So, uh, at one point, Srila Prabhupada stood up, and his servant was uh, next to him. He also stood up, so we realized, okay, now Prabhupada needs to go. And it was not missed by me that his servant was not wearing saffron. It was a grihasta that was traveling with Srila Prabhupada, so my mind started thinking, this might be my best chance. So my strategy was to stand back and watch and see where Srila Prabhupada was walking and anticipate what his path would be. And I realized that he would have to go around the chairs and I saw he would have to walk down a certain corridor and there was a door there and... Being a ticket holder, we could not go beyond that door, so I knew that was where he was going to uh, go in and be out of our sight. 
So as all the devotees, all of us were positioning ourselves, lining up to, to pay our obeisances, knowing now what the path would be, I decided, let me get at the very end of the line, last devotee. So there are 25 devotees bowing down, head on the floor, and mine was also bowing down, but I was turning mine sideways and looking at Prabhupada coming toward my direction. And so I knew I had to be very careful, and I promised Prabhupada in my prayers and uh, in my heart that only one time, Srila Prabhupada, I just want to touch your feet one time. I promise, not, not anything more than that. So I was glancing and seeing he was getting closer and closer and my heart was pounding harder and harder. And uh, anyway, as Prabhupada stepped right in front of my face, I very gently and very carefully, softly touched Prabhupada's left foot. I didn't want to try for anything more than that. Uh, he was His left foot was close to me, so very gently touched it and withdrew my hands and just kept my head down. My overall desire was to serve Prabhupada's lotus feet and try to follow in the footsteps of his lotus feet, but I did want to touch them once, and Krishna gave me that chance. Last point, I have a good friend named Udayananda. You happen to know? So I was sitting, you're right, Marge. I was sitting with him some years back, eight or ten years back, on a Gorpurnima. And somehow we were, you know, we always talked about Prabhupada. And I said, hey, did I ever tell you I touched Prabhupada's feet? He said, no, really, tell me. So I told him the story. <laughs> anyway, I told him the story and I, I told him I was completely ecstatic. I softly touched Prabhupada's left foot and... I felt, you know, just completely satisfied in the heart and never had another desire. I only wanted to serve him. And then I said, so what about you, Prabhu? Did you ever have a chance to touch Prabhupada's feet? So he said, yeah, I did. I said, oh, please tell me. So he said it was in October of 1977. I don't know about the whole lead up, but you want to tell? That that comes on uh, those Siddhar Prabhu made those uh, Prabhupada memories. That once in America, um, yeah, Udayananda Prabhu also had this very strong desire to touch Srila Prabhupada's lotus feet. And uh, once there was a darshan in Prabhupada's room and Prabhupada asked, are there any questions? And Udayananda Prabhu said, Srila Prabhupada, can I touch your lotus feet? Srila <laughs> Prabhupada said, that is not required. Actually, I, I, the whole build-up, you have to see how he was cultivating this desire. He had this very strong desire. And then, he, and then, then everyone was looking at him like, you're such, he used the word nerd. You're such a nerd. Which, which means something like an idiot or something. Yes. Why did you ask that question? But he still had a, this desire, and this was in his heart for so, for some years. He still wanted to, but he he thought, "I can't do it." I'm going to add that in from now on because I I didn't remember that. But okay, <laughs> Uday is a good storyteller too. So.
Yes, yes. So, so uh, Udai said that he was he came into the room, and Trivikram Maharaj was very softly uh, massaging Srila Prabhupada's two lotus feet. Uh, immobile, basically. I mean, this is a month or so. Yes, uh, uh, immobile, but still receiving gentle massage in various places on his body. And so Udai was, of course, stunned to see Prabhupada's condition. So, you know, gaunt. Gaunt means very slender. Basically, it was a skeleton with some skin wrapped around it. Prabhupada hadn't eaten really in six months. So he uh, he ha- there was a spot that was vacant next to to the right side of Trivikram Maharaj who was sitting massaging Prabhupada's feet. So Udai took place right next to Maharaj, uh, sat next to Maharaj. Yes, exactly right, Maharaj. Yeah, he was. He joined about the same time as I did, so he was, you know, a devotee for three or four years. And and Trivikram Swami joined, as we said, in Buffalo in 1967. So they were like super senior devotees, sannyasis. So, but he still, like me, had some strong desire in his heart. So it wasn't likely he was going to get asked, as what Maharaj is bringing up. Not likely at all that he was going to get uh, offered the opportunity to do it. So more than a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, maybe one hour, he sat watching uh, Trivikram Swami gently, lovingly, with great devotion. Uh, Trivikram Swami is a very sincere disciple of Srila Prabhupada. He was watching him gently uh, massage Prabhupada's lotus feet and he was glancing at Maharaj and glancing at Srila Prabhupada's feet back and forth and trying to see if any opportunity might arise. So to his good fortune, he, like I said, watch, he was looking at Prabhupada's feet, watching Maharaj massage them and glancing at Trivikram Swami's face. And all of a sudden, Trivikram Swami gave this really wide, long yawn, like, You know, mouth really wide open, still holding Prabhupada's feet, but yawning like that, and then brought his head back down and continued massaging Prabhupada's feet. And Udayananda said, Aha, in his mind. So he saw an opening, a possibility that maybe he could have a chance to massage Prabhupada's feet. And one thing sannyasis are generally good at is. Uh, giving a dirty look to a young brahmachari if they need it. Dirty look means the same thing. It means a, uh, a strict, a stern, a stern look. Like don't even try it. Don't even think about it. So he got that look from Trivikram Swami like, don't even go there. No. He didn't say anything, but the look spoke loudly. So like a younger brother of Trivikram Swami, God-brother, he just sat there very patiently, but his heart was filled with desire. Please, Krishna, 
please, like I was feeling, please give me just this one chance. So Uday was hoping like that, maybe somehow Maharaj will be merciful. But Maharaj went on for some time, continuing to massage Prabhupada's feet very gently. And then, just uh, in the nick of time, Trivikram Swami looked over. Uh, Uday had maybe started to wane in his hope, in his heart that it would happen. But Trivikram Swami looked over and kind of made a motion with his head. In some way, he indicated, okay, okay, you come. I'll show you. You sit and massage Prabhupada's feet. So they exchanged places. Trivikram Swami moved over to his left and Uday slipped into that same place Trivikram Maharaj had been sitting and he began to gently massage Prabhupada's feet for maybe one or two hours he sat and massaged Prabhupada's feet. So I said, for one or two hours you got to massage Prabhupada's lotus feet. He said, yes Prabhu. He said, actually I got to do that every day for about two weeks. And I want you to know, I was not jealous. I wasn't envious. I wasn't thinking why he got to rub Prabhupada's feet gently for two weeks and I just got to touch them. I was still completely satisfied with the experience I had. Anyway, it was an ecstatic story to hear and I thank Maharaj for helping tell it nicely. <laughs> okay, I will hand this over to Balini Devi. First question. What was that about ruby beads? You said something about ruby beads? What's all that about? Prabhupada had a strand of small, sm- smaller than a BB. If you can think of what a BB was like from BB, they have these BB guns, copper pellets, round, like. A, yes, yeah, 22 uh, caliber BB gun has these round pellets. So a little smaller than those BB pellets and not completely round, kind of like smooth but odd-shaped little ruby beads. Not faceted, but rough, raw raw ruby beads, but but rather rounded surfaces of various uh, shapes. And they had holes drilled through them, so they would string thread through there. And when Prabhupada had a health challenge, some particular... Uh, issue, uh, it was known to him that these ruby beads would be helpful. So from time to time, his disciples would uh, fetch them for him and put them on his neck. So the thread had broken and Jivananda had given me a chance to re-thread that. Very fine thread. Very small drilled hole through these very small beads. So that was the first little bit of personal seva the very first that I got to do from Prabhupada for him on day two that I met him. You say very, very small beads. Yeah, yeah, just, must be two, two. From, from, a mil, from maybe two millimeters, uh-huh. one and a half millimeters. See, uh, Britain is not gun culture. If you say BB in America, everyone may know. I just happen to know two, two. That's... A, yeah. They call that an air rifle. It, it, it's not. It won't. Can't kill you. If it went in, and it could harm in the eye. If it got you in the skin, it would just. Yeah. I just happen to know because that's the only gun you can get in Britain without any license or anything. It's, it's 
just just for fun or something like that. Uh, then the other question I have: um, You were praying to Jesus. Um, That to show you who is his father, but you didn't go to any church or ask any any person who's supposed to be connected to Jesus to to help you make the connection. Any such thing? Could you explain that? You, you, maybe you have to explain about your past. He must have been. You say you're raised as a Christian. I had a similar thing. I was raised a Catholic, but I did. I was attracted by the personality of Jesus, but. I couldn't find anyone, anything like him at all. <laughs> so Prabhupada uh, more than once said that Jesus was a guru of ours, one of our gurus. We take him as guru because he taught bhakti. He taught devotion, love of God. The thing that uh, stumped me was the years that I was going to church and all the sermons I heard and the reading of the Bible. There was really never any... Uh, Clear conception, not only of what God looked like, but what He did eternally in His spiritual kingdom, in the heavenly kingdom. Uh, there was no information about that that I could find that that uh, gave any clear understanding. Uh, we, yeah, we we couldn't. I couldn't find in the Bible a clear understanding of who God the Father is, who Jesus called uh, Heavenly Father, our Father who art in heaven. It's the, the one prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The Bible said God's name is pure and holy. In the book of Psalms it says one should praise the name of the Lord. In the book of Psalms. Old Testament. It said praise the name of the Lord for His name alone is excellent. It said, praise His name with cymbals and drums and high-sounding cymbals. Just like we do. Madungas and kartals. It says, praise God's name because His name is pure and holy. I don't think there's any word for drum. Because the individual drums have names. Mm. And as a class, I don't think there's anything. Mm. Just say, well, yeah. yeah. They just used the word drum in the Bible. That yeah, word was there, Sure. Of course. I'm sure not. From Aramaic to whatever other languages they... Oh, yeah, Old Testament, Hebrew. Yes, New Testament, Aramaic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, that, that was what perplexed me the most... And then I just basically at around age 15 gave up going to church and, and just became a sinful young fellow. And, and then, uh, like I said, around age 21 and a half, maybe close to 22, I, I gave up all my sinful habits and started sincerely praying and, and got the blessings of reading Prabhupada's books and meeting him. What to speak of all the rest of the Vedic literatures, just the Bhagavad Gita as it is with Prabhupada's purports, gave me so much understanding of who the Father was that Jesus was praying to because I, after three days I could understand uh, very clearly and co- with complete confidence that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So, but you didn't go to any priest to explain this? 
Oh, I, I had, I wasn't visiting at that time any priest or I wasn't going to any church. I had just, like I said, from age 15, I wasn't going to church and I was living in California now at age, in, from age 20 uh, to 23 when I joined. And at that point, I was just having association with local hippie people who were chanting this and studying Buddhism and trying out you know, Tibetan mysticism, and we were just experimenting with all kinds of things. But I turned back to my Christian upbringing and just in my own home privately was communing with Jesus. To this day, I take Jesus as my Vartma Padarshika guru who, through praying sincerely to him, somehow or another I was led to uh, Prabhupada's books and from there was able to take up Krishna consciousness. Despite what all the Christians have for criticisms and how they think that we're evil, I'm sure Jesus is very happy that we're all singing Hare Krishna. Okay, baby. Hare Krishna. Oh, glory to Srila Prabhupada. So my story starts when I was eight years old in the third grade in India. They call it standard, third standard. So one day our teacher was sick, so she went home. So she was sick, so we had a substitute teacher come in and speak, you know, take over for our regular teacher for two days. This was a Catholic school. I don't know what Catholic schools are like nowadays, but in those days we were brainwashed to think that if you were not Catholic, you were bad and you were going to hell. So the substitute teacher happened to be a young woman, and she proceeded to inform us young children that there are other religions in the world. She told us about many religions, but uh, she told us about one that really stuck in my mind. She told us about a place called India where there are saintly pilgrims who wear long robes. They pick up a rock and they hold it over their head and they fall down flat. Rock, stone. Sheila. Stone. They fall down and put the stone where their hand is reaching out. They lay on the ground. Then they stand up and they walk to where the stone is placed. They pick the stone up over their head, and then they fall down flat again. Now, mind you, we are little Catholic kids. We've never heard about India. We've never heard about anyone except the priests and nuns that we grew up with. So this is a revelation to us. And she described how these pilgrims are chanting the names of God as they're traveling from temple to temple in this way. There was something familiar about these people. And I felt somehow attracted to them, like I wanted to be with them or I wanted to be one of them. So that was when I was eight years old. And as I went through the Catholic school, I used to have questions. I used to wonder, what is God's name? 
But no one could tell me. I used to wonder why one child is born deformed or ill and another child is deformed beautiful and healthy. In Catholic theology, they have no answer for this. They relegate it to the category of mystery. So I was not satisfied with uh, not having my questions answered. Later on, when I was in high school, I started to doubt the existence of God. And when I was in college, I used to spend hours in the library reading the books by atheists. I left the Catholic Church and I uh, became very, very much disillusioned about the idea of God and my relationship with God. Disillusioned. Discouraged. Discouraged. After a couple years of the dry life of an atheist, I became pretty tired of that. I went to a bookstore in the city where I was living, Cheyenne, Wyoming. In Wyoming, it's the capital city, it's called Cheyenne. I found a book, a small book called At the Feet of the Master. And someone gave me a book called Be Here Now. So you know how Srila Prabhupada says that In some cases, the Mayavad philosophy can be like a stepping stone. It can actually be a positive thing in someone's spiritual journey. So these books by Mayavadis kind of gave me an opening into the idea of metaphysical phenomena. I started reading books about theosophy, and then I started reading books about uh, out-of-body experiences, etc., Slowly, slowly, my mind turned back toward God, and I started to pray to Jesus. But still to that day, no one had been able to answer my philosophical questions. So I asked Jesus, please help me to understand the absolute truth. During those days, I enjoyed watching television. I enjoyed, during those times, watching television and especially talk shows. You know what talk shows are. There's a an interviewer, and he invites interesting people on his show, and he asks them questions. So the Beverly Martinez show from Denver was one of my favorite shows. And one day she invited two devotees from the Denver Hare Krishna temple. I don't think I had ever seen devotees before. I was surprised by how effulgent they were. And I thought, I want to be like those people. I want to be bright. Also, so I found out that they distribute their books in the airport. So I drove two hours to Denver and went straight to the airport. I went inside, and the first person I saw was the lady who, the lady of the two devotees that were on that show. I wanted to speak with her, but she was busy distributing books to someone else. Then a a brahmachari came up to me. And he greeted me and handed me a book. It was a hardcover Bhagavad Gita, and he described a little bit about it. And I said, thank you very much. I came here to get one of your books. He said, well, um, we do ask for a donation. And um, my brother who had come with me and I 
had not thought about the idea of having to pay for the book. So after digging in the pockets of our jeans, we came up with $2.38. So the brahmachari very deftly removed the hardcover Bhagavad Gita from my hands and replaced it with a paperback teachings of Lord Chaitanya. And he put a piece of strawberry incense as a bookmarker inside the book. (laughs) The Denver Temple was a factory for the Spiritual Sky Incense Company. So... So I enjoyed smelling that strawberry incense and reading that book cover to cover. When I finished reading the book, I felt that all my questions had been answered. And I did something that nobody ever does in America, or at least they never did it up until Srila Prabhupada came. I bowed down on the floor and I said, thank you, God, for telling me about you. After that, I decided to associate with the devotees at the Denver Temple, and they encouraged me to move into the Los Angeles Temple. So I moved in on November 18, 1973. November. And immediately after I moved into the temple, Srila Prabhupada came. When Srila Prabhupada first came into the temple room, I was there waiting to see him. And I was surprised to see that he was two inches shorter than me. And uh, But after I got over the initial surprise at seeing how um, small his stature was, I was amazed to see with what majesty he conducted himself. He was the most graceful, effulgent, attractive person I had ever laid eyes on. The temple room was packed with devotees who had already seen Srila Prabhupada in the past. And I was new, so I was kind of taking everything in. I noticed how his big brown eyes were wet. His eyes were so deep, and it looked like he was thinking of Krishna with love. When the devotees stood up or knelt knelt up on their knees after paying obeisances. Srila Prabhupada looked at each of them in their eyes. I remember he looked at Shachi Devi, Karandar's wife. Shachi Devi, she was my friend, Karandar's wife. And very sweetly he asked her, is everything okay? And there was a little girl, a little blonde girl. Prabhupada touched her on the head. Then he walked up to Shishi Gornitai's altar And he looked like he was praying. And he touched his danda on the floor and paid dandavats. He did this very meditatively. And he repeated in front of Sri Sri Rukmini Dwarkadish and then in front of Jagannath Baladev Subhadra. Then amidst a roaring kirtan, he would circle around and then climb the steps and sit on his vyasasan. So these are very simple memories. They may sound very simple, But any contact that one had with Srila Prabhupada was so impressive that it would be seared into our memory like a samskara. Just one small thing I want to share with you and then I'll finish. Srila Prabhupada used to come out for his morning walk. It's usually um, every morning. 
around uh, maybe six o'clock in the morning. And a small group of devotees would be waiting for him at his side door that led to the alley. A car would be waiting for him, and he would come out of his door and descend the steps. And then when he got to the bottom of the steps, he would look each of us in the eyes. And if anyone had a flower offering or any kind of offering, they could present it to him at that point. He was always grateful for the smallest gesture. Then he would slowly climb into the car, and the door was closed, and he would always pranam to us. There are many other memories, but that is uh, what I want to share with you this evening. (laughs) Maharaj is encouraging me to tell more, so I'll just tell one more. Once, uh, when Srila Prabhupada came to Los Angeles, he used to come tour the apartment buildings that were owned by the devotees. So in hopes that Srila Prabhupada would happen to come visit one's apartment, or here maybe you call them a flat, everyone in the entire building would do a maha cleanup. The cockroaches ran in fear. Our apartments were so clean we could eat off the floor. So when Srila Prabhupada would come through the doorway of the apartment building and he would walk down the aisle, uh, the walkway toward the back of the building, we would all be watching and waiting to see whose apartment he would enter. So in those days, I didn't understand the um, the politics of it, but there was uh, some... Uh, disdain toward householders. So I was living with one householder lady and we uh, we had doubts whether Srila Prabhupada would come to visit us because we were you know, we were looked down upon by the rest of ISKCON. In those days if you weren't a brahmachari or a sannyasi you were pretty much a nobody. Nobody means pretty insignificant. But we cleaned our apartments nonetheless and hoped and prayed that Srila Prabhupada would come. So as Prabhupada and his party turned and walked back slowly up the walkway through the apartment building, as he passed each apartment, hearts would fall. Oh, Srila Prabhupada is not coming into our apartment. But when he came to the very last apartment... On the left, he went in the door. He chose to bless the most humble grihasta couple in the community who had the largest number of children who, by the way, were considered Maya in those days. I still remember their names. The, the devotee, the man, the father, his name was Smarnananda, and the mother was Samsaramochan. Hmm? Uh, Smarnananda and Samsaramochan. So we were all a little bit envious of those devotees, but we were happy for them also. And I felt that we all learned a lesson that Srila Prabhupada demonstrated that there's nothing wrong with